0: So I think sometimes this might be the biggest fight that takes more churches out than anything else. So we're going to examine this today and look to Scripture and how to combat against it. Allow God, I, again, I want to, to say this, allow God to search your heart, challenge you in areas that you may have struggled with it. So He points things out. Again, to help us to set us free to make us the church that he intends us to do. Uh, and I have mentioned this several times in Revelation 2-3 when he's writing these letters and John is writing it, but it's, it is, it is, it's encouragement and challenges to Jesus to the churches. And he says, here's what you have going for you, here's what you're doing well, but here's what I have against you. And he would tell them, repent from that because I want you to be who I've created you to be. So there's nothing wrong with us in being challenged, but a lot of challenge you and to point those things out ultimately to make us the church that He created us to be. And so, guarding our hearts to not exalt personal preferences above mission and vision. And so, what do we do with our personal preferences? You can have them. It's just having them within the right context. Let's take, for example, music. People have different music taste, music style. it comes to worship music or, or, you know, church music, and I say this yes, 24/7 in your home, play your music, play your music, worship God, however you come out with God, Because there certain times of certain eras that, that you know, and I'm going to deal with this more specifically in a moment. But you know, certain music touches us in a certain way, and I say. Enjoy your home, in your car. You, you, you blare it if you like to blare it. You turn it down if you like. Whatever you do. When we come in here, we turn and we lay that down. That's what we do with our personal preferences. So we're going to look at, again, these two key passages um, that we have looked at through, throughout this series to remind us Jesus said He's going to build a church. And so churches that close—that that's not Jesus's fault. That's you know again, that's churches that are fighting battles that are trivial, um, and, and and they get caught up in what the enemy's doing, and the enemy takes them out. But you tells in "A church in the gates of hell will not prevail against it." And the Lord wants us to be that kind of church that He is building up. And it, again, I like it because it's His church. And so that's a good reminder when we think of personal preferences. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's His church. And we need to be reminded of that. And then John 4, says, Don't you have a say for four months to the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields, and to for the harvest. So these two passages are saying It's His church. And to remind us of the vision, remind us of the vision uh, of what He's called to do. There's a the harvest of souls. It's about saving something Jesus came to save the lost and to transform lives. And we need to be reminded of that. And so, areas where the church has become me-focused and self-serving—again, these are identified in the book as a part of chapter three. And uh, again, what Tom Rainer does is look at the trends. The church examines what they do well and what they need to work on. Um, and this, again, this book was written challenging the members of the church to be biblical members. And uh, those, again, those trends show what churches are struggling with uh, as a part of, of, of you know, unhealthy churches. Self-centered, me-focused. Knee, and what he's saying is these churches, if they stay in that state, they end up dying. His new follow-up book is called The Autopsy of a Deceived Church. The Autopsy. So he goes and he gets information on churches that have shut down. And he talked to people that were a part of those churches, churches that stopped. They they were at one time alive. Some of them were very alive. And if he would have interviewed people back in that day, they'd have said, no, there's no way this church would ever close its doors. And so he goes to these places in the the, the autopsy of the Seas Church, and he, again, identifies what happened. And a lot of them are tied to, I am a church member, he said they forgot the mission and vision they begin to do these things and begin to focus on these things fighting the wrong battles and at some point there's an end and they die. And so if churches aren't made churches inevitably die. And so he part of chapter 3 of i church number he does his survey and it's dominant behaviors of self-serving me-oriented churches these are battles that the enemy wants us to wage against each other to cripple us and to take us out. I'm not going to deal with all of them, but up here is just a few. And we're going to just kind of touch in on those. These are things that he's identified. He's been, you know, across the United States and dealt with many, many, many different thousands of churches, and he has boiled it down to say here, here, here is, is what's happening in me-oriented, self-serving churches. Worship wars. I just got to talk about that. It's one of the biggest battles in churches. Worship wars. And he says in the book, he says, remember, say, if music isn't what I want, it's not with anger and it demands for change. And so then you have this worship war, old versus new, and versus choruses, instruments that are bad or good. People say, well, that, back, in, back in the day, and I hope that you know, this touches on your toes, I, I'm sorry, but it's not biblical. But back in the day, there were things that they would say, certain instruments are up with death. I'm thinking, find that in the Bible. Because the psalmist says, guilt skillfully with a loud noise. And, and there's been battles over certain instrumentation. Well, that's good and that's not. And I don't like this. And we have preferences. But here's the problem. Is if we go one at a time, and I just interviewed you one at a time, I could just draw you off. There's going to be a, a lot of different opinions in there, right? A lot of different preferences. And so, ultimately, you have to follow what the Lord is doing. It's all versus to do. Instrumentation. Some people will say, well, when that music plays, the Holy Spirit moves. And when this, it sets the Holy Spirit down, we play that type of music. And I'm thinking, where's that in the Bible? And what has happened is we have a past personal preference of a time in our lives where a certain song or a certain style of music touched us and a certain way. And it was very real. But the problem is we, we associate that with the Holy Spirit himself. And that's a wrong thing. Because when you have people that are angry about it and they will fight fights and battle with it and they will rebuke certain things and they will... That's when you have exalted above the Lord himself. And, and you've made sacred that which is not sacred, which you need is sacred. Not music, not styles. You know, because people go, well, you have to go back to this era and that was when it was really happening. And I'm thinking, well, how far do you go back? Did you find out what music they were singing in Genesis 1? And that's what we should be singing? No, absolutely not. And times and seasons and eras there have the music. And I've talked about this before. There were, which is interesting. There's a book called "Who Soul My Church," which is a, is a very interesting thing. And one of the things he goes with them there is music. He said. He he, he talks about, he does some, you know, some research. There was times when when, when certain instrumentation was brought in and and, and the older people, the people that were in the church got angry. Like, there was a time when organs came into the church and the older people were angry. They thought it was worldly devil music. Did you know that? Because they would play organs in the theater or in a bar, and they were trying to reach people. But at some point, the organ became sacred. There was a time when there was no music in the church, and they started you know, sort of putting music into the church, and people were very angry. very worldly, very wrong. And so these different times and eras, and you can see again where the enemy causes that to be a battleground, and churches have split over music, worship war. Is meetings that are inconsequential and have nothing to do with the vision and mission. In other words, they, churches that are, are, are dying and, and they, they're meeting oriented, they, again, they, they, they are brought together and they have different meetings that, that really don't matter and they talk about trivial things. As opposed to, what is God saying about the vision mission? How can we reach people? How can we touch people with the gospel? Those things are not intended. In meetings, it's trivial, self centered self-serving type ideas. Meetings that can go rogue, where people are yelling at each other. That is happening. It's happening. And Tom Rader talks about the church, he so can you imagine you're having a meeting and people? And it goes back. and you imagine the vision that was there? Well, our new person. Another one is facility focused, making the building sacred as opposed to, again, Jesus' his work, the Holy Spirit, as sacred. And he says this in the book he says, Buildings get an iconic status, and there's a high priority on protection of protecting rooms, furniture, and other visible parts of the building when that becomes what we're passionate about instead of the transformations of the soul that we've got, something has happened to our heart. Something has happened. Seriously, to and we have to examine it. And I'm getting that upset about this. Something has happened to my heart. Four, inwardly focused budget and programs. And there's more money and time going into us than reaching out to the harvest field. Five, and this probably is a good summary of all these, an attitude of entitlement, need-focused self serving I'm a member, therefore the church will do this or that, or what I want them to do. And so it becomes, I'm a member, so it's mine. And we have this unholy ownership. We should take ownership of those things, and we should be a functioning member, but when it we, when we gets out of the realm and we begin to have an unholy ownership, it's a toxic thing for its church. Number six is more concern over change than the gospel. And again, this is just, this is, these are things that he looks that He's looking at across the United States. It's no different here. Things that we have to guard. So people get more passionate, angry when changes are made, and they don't seem to have the same passion to see the church for the gospel or to souls that are lost. And. Something stirs them in a passionate anger about change—and there are lost people out there, and we don't really the same passion we don't have. Throughout. Again, these aren't intended to bring guilt, but a reality check to our hearts. Problem is, is that these are too commonplace in most churches around the country, and it reveals what kind of state we are in but here's this good news, it doesn't have to be that way with us. We can turn around, we can repent of those things, we can examine our hearts, and we can become the church, we can become the members of the body of Christ that He has called us to be. So how do we do that? We look to Jesus. We follow Jesus. Because He is on a mission, He has a vision, I will build my church, when He came to the Son of Man, to seek and save the lost. He was vision-driven, He was mission-driven by His Father, and so we follow Him. He came and He radically rescued us so that we could in turn work with Him to radically rescue others. That's what it's about. And so then you look at the way He came, the way He lived, how He taught what he focused on. How he defined greatness. These were all um, a model for us to follow because we said, I want you to be my followers. Remember when we called the disciples, the same invitation to the disciples, with the our invitation, come and follow me. You're going to have to take us across. but I want you to follow me. And if, he is, if we're following, who's doing the leading? He is. And so what happens is He leads us in this counterculture life. It's completely against scripture, It's completely against, against me, me, me being the focus. Living for my personal preferences. It has no place in the Gospel life. In, those, in that list that I just gave, when you find yourself in that, that is not the Gospel life when you are focused on those issues. When those things are prevalent in your life, at some point, you will stop following Jesus. Because where he leads, he's going to leave you different from that. And if you find yourself caught in there, you stop following Jesus at some point. And so, as disciples, as followers, we are followers, we're not leaders. We're not calling the shots. He is. And so, how does he lead? Where does He lead us to? And here's the thing, He leads us to be servants. I will become a serving member. The cure for self-centered, being-oriented living is being a servant. And that's the calling of our lives as we follow Christ and look at His example. So we're going to look at Scripture, we're going to see what Jesus tells us, we're going to see how He wants us to. How he wants to lead us and how we are to follow and how we combat being self serving So let's go to scripture. Let's go look at the first one. Words of Jesus. Might sound familiar, some of these from what Gary shared this morning. Then he said to them, uh, to them all, this is an invitation to all of us. He said, Whoever, aren't you glad he said, whoever? It wasn't exclusive. It was whoever. Whoever wants to be my disciple, what must what? Here's how Jesus is going to lead you. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, But whoever loses their life for me will save it. So what did he say? Deny yourself. Denying yourself goes against self-serving, me focused life, right? Deny yourself. Put away that desire to please yourself, and then all, then, then think about others. Because ultimately, that's what Jesus did. He came for us. He came to give His life for us. And so we put aside personal preference, we put aside our own opinions as we follow Him. Again, there's a place for that to have your personal preference, It's not wrong to have that. It's what we do with it. And if it gets elevated higher than Christ, that's when we should be concerned. So these are the words of Jesus. Alright, let's go look at the next one. Again, the words of Christ. When the ten yeah, heard about this, and I'm describing there, James and John's request. James and John had gone to Jesus and said, Hey, in the kingdom, can we one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in the eternal kingdom? These guys are always you know, arguing about greatness and arguing about, and, and so James and John, they go to Jesus, and one place they have their mother go and ask Jesus this, and they say, you know, are in the eternal kingdom, one of us sit on your right and left. and so to so him, the other ten heard about this, their request, they became indignant, they were angry at James and John, how dare you ask him, I think maybe they're thinking, "I least I would ask asked him, you guys are a little more on top of it. And so Jesus uses this opportunity. Here they are asking, "Can I come in your you know, Can one of us come and right and left? And so Jesus calls them all together. He knows the other ten are mad, he calls them together, and he's going to give them a teachable moment here. He says, "This guys, come on. I mean, this is my. I'm going to go back to the disciples. you know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles and lorded over them." Biases and authority over them. And he's saying, there's a reality in this world that there are this hierarchy of structure, there are people that will lord over, you know, they use their, they use their authority to rule and, and put people down. He said, you know, I understand that that happens. He said, but this, 43, not so with you. In other words, I'm going to give you a little bit of my kingdom my kingdom understanding. It's not a kingdom of this world. If you're thinking that it's about this world, you're wrong. It's not. It shouldn't be with you. He "Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom to So Jesus uses a pretty hardcore word here. He says, "slave." We all understand that word. I mean, there was, in this nation, the atrocity of slavery, using people, you know, forcing them to do labor. And it was just an awful, awful thing to treat a human almost as subhuman. Back in this day, it was even to a greater degree in some ways. I'm not trying to minimize what has happened, but Jesus was saying, I want you to get the idea of what a slave would do, and that's kind of what I you to in the kingdom. It's a hardcore word. Servant and slave. So, because what, what is a slave? Ultimately, the rules of slavery are this. You have no rights to yourself. It's the ultimate pushing self-serving and you focused stuff to the side. You don't have rights to yourself. And Jesus is saying, I want you in the kingdom of God to take on the form of to like play, to serve. Because ultimately what He did. He gave His life. And we're going to look at that in, in, from Philippians in just a moment. You want to be great? serve. That's what it means to be great in His kingdom. Not a king of the earth, but a kingdom of God. Let's go to the next page because He ultimately, He gives this example and I don't have the whole text here, but um, I just have what happens. John 13, this is before Jesus is arrested. 13, remember John 13 through 18 is, is before He's arrested. In John 13, it says that he. One, one translation says he's going to show them the full extent of his love, and what does he do? He washes their feet. Now, this is interesting if you don't understand the context of what is happening. The person that would wash your feet when you came into someone's house was a lowest slave of the household. It's like you know the the bottom of the pole. You know, you, you, if you're looking at a corporate ladder, you're not anywhere near the top. You are at the very bottom. It was the lowest place in the house. You know, people walked. You know, uh, you know, they didn't have cars back then. You're walking the same trails as camels and donkeys. You get the idea. When you get to someone's house, your feet are bad off. And so you would come in, and that's why it was very normal for them to wash feet because they didn't want you to come in and bring. The stuff that donkeys and camels do into someone's home, and so the the the, the lowest slave would be there with a with a, a water basin. They would sit down, and they would take his shoes off, and they would get down, and they would put a towel around them, and they would wash their feet and wash. And so their hands are in the midst of this stuff, and they wash their feet so that they could then go into the home. And here is Jesus. He's about to be. He understands what's about to happen to him. He's about to be arrested and go to the cross. And he's not sitting there thinking about himself. Like my last meal, it is his last meal. But he's not thinking about what would I like to. He's instructing them. He's pouring he's these kingdom ideas into them. And the thing that he does in 13 is he starts. Getting, he gets on the team when he goes from one to the next to the next and he begins to wash their feet. It's a powerful, powerful illustration of Jesus saying, I've come to give my life to you. To lay my life down and take on the form of a slave. Serving in true love. What does it really mean to love? It's to lay my rights down to myself and serve you. And peters said, I imagine they were all a little uncomfortable understanding the awesomeness of this. And peters said, you know, would be the guy that would always kind of seem to talk first. And he said, Lord, why are you doing this? I i you, and Jesus said, well, let's not wash your feet. I, you know, have no part with me. Let me do this for you. This is the purpose. This is the purpose of my kingdom. So it's more than just washing feet. It is an, this idea of this is a kingdom revelation to serve. Now, when he says to them this, now, what I have done for you, do for each other. Go out and do for others. Go serve them. Go love them. Be an extension of me to show the world that you're filled with me and that you've laid your life down. You have no rights to yourself. You've taken up your cost. You've focused on yourself selfish and you are following me. Because through these things, the world will see me and you. So, those are what Jesus did. Now, let's pick up what Paul wrote to some of the churches here. Let's look at the next one the love chapter. We've explored this last time uh, or two weeks ago, but what does it say in there? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It It does not boast. It is not proud. It's not puffed up. It does not dishonor others. And then what does it say? It is not self-seeking. I'm going to love others enough and I'm not going to seek my own preference, my own opinions, but love, true love, does not seek it's own. It's not self-seeking. Galatians five. to the next one. What does he say here? You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. And so there's a calling of freedom. That Christ wants us to be free. But then what he calls us to? Don't use the freedom to indulge in the false. Rather, serve one another humbly and love. So the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command: love your neighbor as yourself. Lay down your life for your neighbor. And then what does he say? If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Use your freedom to serve one another, humbly and love. That's what he says. Use your freedom to serve, humbly enough. What happens when we become self-serving and me-centered? You start biting and devouring each other, and that church is ultimately headed to die. When I make it about me, then I start biting and devouring. And that's what in other places Paul writes about, that we should not boss or slander each other. We, uh, James says don't grumble and complain because the judge will judge you for that. Instead of you know, biting and devouring, what happens when I begin to bite and devour It's because I be, it's become about me and how it affects me and how this affects me and I don't like this or that and so then I begin to bite and devour those who are not like me. Romans 15. Let's go to the next one. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the to insult, you have fallen on me. What is Paul saying here? We who are strong. He's talking about believers who have been believers for a long time. He said "You should have a level of maturity. If you've been a believer, if you've been walking with Christ for a long time, you are taught out of bear with the failings of the meat. Those who are young in the Lord, those who may not even know the Lord, those who are searching—we should bear with them. And then, how do we do it? Not to please ourselves. Bear with new people. Build them up." follow Jesus, again, for what Paul says, who didn't come to please himself. And so I will come in, I will come to a corporate gathering as Hebrews 10, and I will stir each other up to love and good deeds. I will lay aside my preferences and my opinions for the sake of new people. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. He up there. Okay. he says, I, I will do whatever it takes to win me. To the Jews, I become Jews. To the Gentile, I will do this that I, I, I do all things to all men that I might win them to Christ. In other words, he said, the mission has never changed. The message will change. The music style will change. The way we dress will change. And if some people get offended by preaching in jeans. Where's that in the Bible? God calls me to modesty. There is a, there is a, a, a thing that we... You know, the principle of modesty. And we should be modest. Some people are a preaching for what they're you I'm thinking, where's that in the Bible? Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they had on the holy guard and they used that as a coward. He said, outwardly, you look real holy, but inwardly, you are full of dead men's bones. You are filled with... It is it, grotesque to God that you would look the part of it inside and greed and lying and lust and all of these things, but I'm hiding it. You're like whitewashed tubes. You're clean on the outside, but you're so filthy on the inside. That's why there's a bit like it. You know, just an average person that walked around and taught with authority. But we who are strong are to with the of that we can think about others. 1 Corinthians 10, to the next one. Paul well, says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructed. He said, you know what? You can do whatever you want to do. There are consequences to what you do. You know, basically, you can't make anyone do anything that they don't want to do. And I've said, I've said this before, we do what we want to do, right? Especially in America. We don't live in a conscious, world country where maybe you know, we're under great oppression we're being made to do things. We live in a America where we have choices that are fingertips and so we, we do and we prioritize what we want. And Paul's saying, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything that's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should speak their own good but the good of others. So thinking others, thinking about others. And now we're going to look at this main text. and We're going to spend about just a few minutes here. I'm going to read it through. So the next one I'm going to read it through, and then I'm going to break it down and I'm going to close actually with time of communion. Philippians 2, very well known passage. Therefore, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit in tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather than humility value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of the spirit, being made into the likeness and being found in point to the man of humbled himself by becoming obedient to God with death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus will be used to die, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledges that Jesus is Lord the glory of God the Father. So let's break this down a little bit. In verse 22. Last week, you know, I talked about this. If you're walking with Jesus and in the Spirit, then being in the church—that's one of the—that's one of the truth that you are walking with the Lord. In other words, don't let your life be a contradiction. Well, I'm walking with the Lord, but I'm in disunity with my brothers and sisters, and I'm divided, and I'm, 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 I'm angry with them, and I don't forgive them, and I'm walking, but I'm a follower of Christ. add up. And that's what Paul's saying, is it's involved it twice like to you're walking in the Spirit get along with each other. Verse 3 says, don't do things out of selfish ambition. Again, that's that me centered. I will do this or that if it benefits me. I'll commit if it's beneficial to me. We approach each day with the self determination is me first. And go against that instead of humility, serve one another. The kingdom's not about us, it's about him. Verse 4, he takes it a step further. He says, don't even look out for your own interests. In other words, know your preferences is aside, right? Don't look out for your own interests, but to the interests of others. But to the interests of others. And we can put up with things for a bit because we want to serve them. We want to love them. We tend to put ourselves out there, talk about ourselves, our accomplishments. We put the limelight on us. We talk about what we have done. We take a selfie. That is. Self, or as Brian Regan would say, the great theologian, filled with the me monster. Me? We promote our preferences over the mission and those things that guard our hearts. And then in verse 5, it says, in your relationship with others, I mean, this is really talking right here. In your relationship with others, have the same mindset as Jesus. That's pretty heavy there. In your relationship with others, those you like or maybe those you don't like or maybe somebody that has a different style preference than you says, in your relationship with others have the same mindset of Jesus and what did Jesus do? He didn't use his position as equally God for his own advantage but instead he took on the nature of a servant, slave he humbled himself he became obedient to death on the cross and this was actually his pathway to victory his pathway to greatness in the world's eyes, it seemed like all was lost. It seemed like a great, defeat. remember the disciples scattered and they're all hope is lost. They're hiding out and they're thinking, we've lost, it's, it's, we're, we're done. But not so in God's kingdom. It ended up being the greatest victory in the history of the world. And His pathway to greatness was humbling Himself. And then what happened? God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place. That every knee would bow and every tongue would confess to the name of Jesus, to the glory of God. And so how did he get there where God would exalt him to the highest place if he got to be exalted to the highest place by being humble and being a servant and not making equality with God something that he would use for his advantage? And so what does it tell us? Pride leads to destruction, but humility proceeds to honor. Servant proceeds honor. honor. So, well, we will make the greatest impact by following Jesus and his example. So, don't use your position for your own advantage. Take on the nature of a servant and a slave. Consider others before yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. This is the path to greatness. It might seem like a waste in the world's eyes to people like, you know, why are you doing that? Because it's counterculture. But God sees our heart, And it brings Him the greatest glory. And in fact, this is what we were created for. We are self-centered and refocused, focused That's the greatest path to frustration because you're never to be satisfied. So we were created not for ourselves but to lift the name of Jesus to proclaim the gospel with our lives, and to bring in glory. And I thought what a great way to finish today is by taking communion together. And this idea of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. It's interesting that we're called that, isn't it? Paul says, you're the body of Christ. Everyone is a member of it. And you should be functioning as a member of the body of Christ. We need you. You're necessary. And we're called the body of Christ. And it's interesting when Jesus instituted this idea of communion. And depending on what your upbringing is, you know, community, we, we, we have an open community here. What we ask is that you are a believer in Jesus, that you are a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, and you can take communion. Some church say, well, you know, I'm are a member of our church We don't believe that. We believe that as a Christian, you are a member of the church. But isn't it interesting that when Jesus instituted this and it was a memorial of him and he says, you know, these are symbols of what's getting ready to happen to me. And we're called the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says that. And then what does Jesus do when he takes the bread and says, this is my body. And what does he do? He breaks it. Because what he says and it's interesting, in light of 1 Corinthians 12, it's a twofold thing. He's definitely saying, I'm getting ready to be broken for all of mankind. They're, gonna, they're going to beat me. They're going to destroy this body. And it, my body will be broken for you. That's, that's the extent of the love of Jesus for you. And if you're wondering today if Jesus loves you or not, look at the cross. Look at the beating that He endured. That was just play. and His that He you. He said, this is my body. It will be broken for you. And I like to think that when Paul says, we are the body of Christ, we're broken, aren't we? We are broken. All of us. We're broken. And we're in need of a Savior. We are all. We all fail. We all sin. We all struggle. All of us and we're in need of a Savior. We're in need of redemption. But here's the thing, is we are the body that is broken. His body is broken. And it's interesting, you could do a whole worship on bread. Remember when you took the little boy's lunch and you began to break the bread? And he began to feed the multitude? When we understand our brokenness and our need for Jesus, we will feed the multitude not in prideful ways of not saying, you know, look how awesome we are. Is that when somebody looks at my life, I want them to say, look how awesome Jesus is. Because we're all broken and we need Him. And his body is broken for us, So we are now the broken body of Christ that desperately needs His healing, His restoration, and His salvation. And we are also broken but unified. He heals us through he restores us, and then we are unified to be a unifying voice to proclaim the gospel to a world that's so death that so desperately needs to hear. And the church, the body of Christ, with Jesus as we are the hope of the world. That's why the enemy fights the truth. That's why the enemy wants to destroy the truth. That's why the enemy wants to keep us fighting about things that don't matter. He wants to make us ineffective. He wants us to gripe and grumble and complain about each other. He wants to keep us in that that, that, that rut that we're never going anywhere, we're just doing this until we just finally cease to exist and the enemy is happy with that. But when we humble ourselves and we realize our own brokenness and our need of Christ, that we will proclaim His gospel world. So again, as we take communion today, encourage you to search your hearts. Where have you been in community? Where have you placed preferences of the mission? What do you need to make right? When Paul instituted to the Corinthian church communion, because he said, you should do this until, until, until the Lord comes, you should proclaim the death until he returns. But he talks some very sobering words in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, "When you do it, don't 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 take these elements in a guilty way." And then he goes on; to "Search their heart. So don't just take it like you know. Well, well, I mean, this is, just what we do, and just come up here and just kind of. He said, "Be sober-minded." I Be understand? If there's something you need to get right, not, not I'm talking about guilt or shame. You can just quietly profess that and ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins and, and you are cleansed when you come with sincerity. So it's not about guilt or, or you know, oh no, it, it, it just to the Lord, oh, it's just simply saying, Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. how help me make that right. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for your cleansing. But don't take it in a guilty way. So we should, should search our hearts. i happened? What the lights down, David, and you can have that music playing quietly, and have a couple of our leaders, if you guys want to just up here, this side, if you guys want to just come down this aisle and take the elements here, and then you can return to feet, this side over here, in a moment when I release you, you can just take it as you so feel led, just as you come, uh, but I want to pray for us. And I, I, I just ask during this time in these quiet moments that you, you know, search your hearts. Even David said, he said, church, you know, God, see if there's your intensive way. So Lord, we love you today. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you. We are the Lord of the church. We are building the church. And Lord, we want to become Members in that church step, Lord, that, that, that is just telling you about the reason you see why it's attached to the kingdom of God. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you're not going walking with into it. Maybe this is all meeting, but maybe this is like the next chapter you see. Thank you, God. Thank you. There's a reality to our lives after we stop living this life. We will to live There's a reality to the And the Lord does save us in this life, but ultimately to save us so that we can spend eternity with the The idea is this we're all sinners, we're, we're not basically good at this. Humanistic idea that in culture, man is not basically good, we are rotten to the face of the one and the Our tendency is to festers. We are all broken and you suffer when you're saved. And you're saved with you. Changing your earth, you're born of a virgin live their life, their holiness, their dedication to God, who loves who serves, and ultimately will lead to the cross. And our response to that gift is ultimately what leads us to salvation. And we not have to business in us, we can take it ourselves to have it tonight, accepting and receive the gift of life in Christ. I've seen his sacrifice, and then what I say is, I now that I have done my own thing. I've my own life, and that I far away from life. And to that, and say, I come to that, and I do again. that's get up tomorrow and what to, to today. So yes, i forgive to so, yes, you my son, need to do you So if you've never done me, you if you know the, the it's really a great to the you, you where know, we want to honor you I know that a lot of us a lot of that you have to a lot of are on the rules and powers you can tell us You say, you okay, so take the you want to. Remember the cross. Especially when, I and right when we have a person's to go out there and to have and I go, we're not afraid of you remember the right. like, oh, okay, cross, you get for us. You i because I to you to i you the Lord himself, Jesus gave to me that on the night when he was betrayed, he took dread and So this is my body is to you. It's all Remember me. Remember me, every day we remember me. It's typically this time to remember the sacrifice that you made in this body that's broken. And all of a sudden I'm able remember me. And then after the temple of the blood, he took the top, that was still the one, he said, this, this, this is my blood, it's symbolic. It's not the real blood, it's not the real body, but it's symbolic to remember me. So this is my blood often hope you on the level of the council and the council is concerned of the international and of the and the the way that will be obedient you, you, be the way to do that will not that be the and